Well, Happy New Year. Uh, very thankful to be here with all of you on this, on this very wintry day. It's, it's, it's a lot more blustery than we've seen. So, um, yeah, it definitely feels a lot like winter now, uh, which, is, which is good, which is good for us. But the beginning of the new year for us as a church is, as, is, is very much, I assume, the way it is for you. It feels as though we get a bit of a fresh start. Uh, we, hit, we hit the reset button a little bit. Beginnings are always a great time to, to take up something new and to start something afresh, um, whether you, I don't know, something about the beginning of every week or the beginning of a month or the beginning of a year that really feels like, like the time to, to get rededicated, uh, to, to buckle down, to start something new. So, you know, if you strayed from your commitments from the, pri- from the previous cycle or the previous year, um, now is a good is a good time to pick those things up. So I do have to ask, as is, as is customary for a, for a New Year's type, type sermon, um, how are the resolutions going? How, how's everything panning out? It's, this is day seven, so this is our first full week, you know, so, so pretty good. Uh, you know, whatever it is you're counting, you know, to start this year, whether you're counting money in your savings, if you're counting your steps, or if you're counting things like your calories, I wish all of you best of luck. On those, on those resolutions. You know, it's easy for us to, to make light of resolutions, and I think we all do them, but um, it, is, it is sometimes appropriate for us to take inventory of what's happening in our, in our lives, to take true stock of things, um, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to our own Christian life. There's nothing wrong for, uh, about trying to have a new resolve for the new year, whether you're doing something like Maybe starting a new Bible reading plan, hopefully that's going well. Maybe if you dedicate yourself in the new year to, uh, to be more generous through giving, you're dedicating yourself more to service. Uh, maybe you're trying to be more serious about, about prayer or, or family devotions, memorizing those verses, whatever the case is. And I'm certainly not, um, not mocking any of those things. Those things are all can be very good. Even the elders and I have been making plans for the new year, things that we'd like to start to do different here at the church. So it is very, it is very natural. And so what we decided to do for the beginning of the year um, here in the church is, is to really lean into that over the next few weeks um, as we cover a handful of topics related to the Christian life. If now is a good time to sort of reset some priorities, to think about um, what it is we want to keep our, or maintain as our focus as we pursue a, a life under grace, well then I think that the next few weeks we'll, we'll cover a, a handful of things, beginning with the topic discussed here in Romans chapter 6. There are some foundational principles to life in Christ, to living as a Christian. Um, there are several ideas related to living under grace, and the first one that we're going to begin with to start the new year is we're going to talk a little bit about the grace of death, um, the grace of death. What I mean by that, how we are to understand that, um, how death can be in many ways a blessing um, in a particular way, well, a lot of that is unfolded for us in our passage here in Romans 6 as we consider the grace of death. We're going to look at Romans 6, 1 through 14 under, under three headings. This isn't necessarily a, a real um, meticulous, you know, word-by-word study, but we are going to cover the general ideas and, 
and, and try to consider what this passage is, is, is saying as a whole concerning this idea of the grace of death. So the first thing I want us to see from Romans 6, uh, 1 through 14 is point number one. The idea that point number one, grace kills. Grace kills. Life under grace, which is where we end in, in, in verse 14, saying that we are not under law but under grace. Life under grace can be a somewhat dangerous thing. Um, as we dive right into the book of Romans, we're not going to give a ton of background. We, you know, we haven't studied this book as a, as a church as long as I've been here. So maybe hopefully one day we'll get to um, a more thorough exegetical look at it. But we think about Romans and what's been laid out for us through, from Romans 1 through up, up here to Romans chapter 6 is Paul has been laying the foundation of this, of this basic principle, a principle that can be found in a place like Romans um, chapter, chapter 3, that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The very fundamental idea presented um, through the early parts of Romans and is being implicated here is the idea of what does it mean for God to be gracious and um, how do we now live as a people who are justified by this thing called grace? What are the consequences? What does that mean for our lives? How do we tease that out? And how do we, and how do we live under that grace? As it's laid out for us by Paul, he says things like um, the works of the law are not the things that justify us in God's sight. Those are not the things that make us right in God's sight, give us standing with him. We are sinners, incapable of fulfilling the law. And so this is, a, this is a, a matter of good news that God brings to us, a righteousness that is not based on works of the law, but, a righteous, but, but the righteousness of faith, a righteousness apart from works, through faith in Jesus Christ. And these are the terms that we live under. These are this, this unmerited favor in the sight of God is what we cherish and what we embrace and what we love. And while that's all true, the beginning of our passage begins with a bit of a, a, bit of a conundrum. There's this question put before us because there's a misunderstanding about how we are to conduct that, that life of grace. You know, we say amen to the idea that, that, we, that we stand before God due to his unmerited favor. Which is, which is wonderful. Um, but once that is pronounced, then we have to answer the question, then where, does, where do works fit in? Uh, where does a godly life fit in? The life that we all desire to have, that maybe we're starting this year afresh with, seeking to honor him more thoroughly. Um, how, does, you know, how do works and grace work out? How do we understand them? Well, one way we should not think about things um, is this idea that's presented here at the beginning of Romans, of Romans 6. This idea... Um, this idea that, you know, are we to continue in sin in order that grace may abound even more? See, there's a, there, there's a fundamental um, error that one can fall into considering grace and law and works. Paul even talks about it earlier in Romans 5, and he puts it this way. He says, if our unrighteousness um, serves to show the righteousness of God, so if our sinfulness, if our unrighteousness um, is meant to demonstrate and show forth the righteousness of God in contrast, then why not just do evil so that more good would come? I mean, 
kind of makes sense in one twisted way. If we want to elevate the name of God, if we want to see him as more righteous and holy, then why not just really blow it and live life however we want so that when God comes in and does like he promises and saves us, then we can be all amazed and, and praise God for how gracious and how wonderful he is. I mean, we are certainly suckers for a certain type of, of, of testimony, are we not? I mean, don't we love to hear testimonies of those who have, who have lived a life, who, I mean, who have gotten into some stuff in their life, who've, uh, who've really struggled? Um, and then we praise God because of his grace and his love and his mercy to save even the most wretched among us. Isn't that something that we cheer for? That we are... Um, or those things are praiseworthy. And when we hear those testimonies, for many of us, it's like, man, the more extreme we can go, the better um, for those sorts of things. So Romans 6 starts by asking that question, right? Are we, continue, are we to continue in sin that grace may, may abound? Is the point of living a life um, under grace, being justified by faith in Christ, is part of the package and part of the deal for that? Well, it, does that just give us free reign to sin as much as we like, uh, to disregard the law of God um, so that his grace may increase. Well, I think it's fair to say uh, no. <laughs> the obvious answer is, is no. And it's for one simple fact that's going to set the stage for this, entire, um, for this entire section and our morning together. And that is simply this, that grace is hotly opposed to sin. That grace is so opposed to sin that, in reality, the grace of God destroys it. Um, the idea that we would increase in sin in order to produce more grace is, non, is nonsensical. The grace of God comes to kill, and it comes to kill sin um, specifically. Luther describes it this way in discussing this passage. He says that, Paul does not teach that grace is acquired through sin, nor that sin brings grace. Uh, he says quite the opposite, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Because the sins of men which are taken away are so grievous and so numerous, the grace which, which drowns and destroys them must be mighty and abundant also. Where there is great thirst, a great draft is needed to quench it. Where there is a mighty fire, powerful streams of water are necessary to extinguish it. In cases of severe illness, strong medicine is essential to a cure. But these facts do not give us the authority um, to say that let us cheerfully injure ourselves or make ourselves sick, that medicine may do us more good. Still less does it follow that we may heap up and multiply sins for the purpose of receiving more abundant grace. Grace is opposed to sin and destroys it. How then should it strengthen, or, or sorry, how then should it uh, strengthen, yeah, or increase it? A life under grace is not a license to sin. In fact, a life under grace requires a dying to sin so that we might live to God, as our passage will, will tell us. And while we fundamentally know that and why we, we hopefully understand that as, um, as Christians, no matter what stage of life you find yourself in, the way in which Paul will then go on to talk about 
the death to sin here in Romans 6 is one thing is the way he discusses it is very strange. And it may not be the most immediate thing that comes to mind when we think of the way in which God's grace puts sin to death. So the second thing I want us to see from Romans 6 is point number two. I want us to see union with a gracious death. Union with a gracious death. Obviously, the question of whether or not grace means license, it doesn't even make sense. Because the very notion of God's salvation entails your union with a death. God's grace comes to kill um, sin in particular. And one of the ways in which Paul outlines and, and describes our salvation is he describes it in this terms of union. Union to a death and hope in life. This is a union that God has graciously, graciously bestowed upon us that is not a result of your works. Um, it is something that you have been joined by faith uh, to. But the way in which Paul, again, talks about this is very strange because he says, um, first and foremost, we think about how sin, how sin is put to death in our lives in particular and as we live under grace. The first thing we should not think about is our activity of actively killing sin day to day in our lives. But the very first foundational, fundamental thing that we're told to dwell on and to consider and to meditate on is the reality that by faith we have been joined to a death that has already taken place. A death that has taken place um, thousands of years ago now. Notice the strange language. It says, what shall we say then, in verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That phrasing is strange. Um, he says that something has taken place in the past that we've been joined to, that we have, that we have died at some point in the past. And somehow that even has far-reaching implications into our daily regular participation now. We have died to sin, and if that is the case, if we have died at some point already, how then will we continue to live in it? By answering the question of how do we deal with works and grace, how do we handle sin, by basically saying, no, you don't, you, you don't sin anymore according to God's grace because you've already died to it. Well, that's a very strange, like, we're, aren't we trying to die to sin? Aren't we trying to to live for God and obey his law? How can we seek to do something and yet be told by Paul that, that well, that has already happened. It's already been fulfilled, fulfilled in you. Like we, don't, we don't speak in, in those ways. We don't comfort people in those ways or encourage them in that way normally. Right? Like we don't, when someone is saving to buy a house and they're trying to find a way to afford a house and they're really stressing about it because the real estate market is crazy. Uh, if you're trying to afford a house you don't come to them and say, hey, hey, don't worry about it. Um, you've already bought the property. So don't, don't stress out. Uh, you're, you're seeking to buy, like, to buy a house, but you already have property. Don't worry. That just doesn't make sense. But when, you're, when you're fretting over your future, your plans for your future, when you're planning for a job or you're, preparing, or you're, or, or you're fretting over when, you know, when that proposal is going to come, when you're, if you're fretting about a pending engagement, you're fretting about a job that, that, that's coming or that you're trying to get, 
You don't say, hey, don't worry about it. Like, you're already married. Or you don't say, hey, don't worry about it. That job's already yours. Like, those, those types of, that type of instruction doesn't seem to be very, very helpful. But Paul thus speaks to us in this passage. The grace of God is such that we are declared righteous by faith. We've been united, he tells us, in the person of Christ. And everything that is true about Christ, everything that he has experienced, including his death, is also true of us. The life he lived, we live. His death is our death. And his resurrection is our resurrection. And this idea has far-reaching implications, in particular when it comes to our understanding of, of death. A life under grace. Um, if you endeavor to live before God's face in the new year and pursue him wholeheartedly and earnestly, it begins first by considering how we've been united with Christ in his death, we're told here in this passage. Look at the way he continues to speak um, as he starts to now describe our union to that death through baptism. He says, who, I'm sorry, how can he, um, or how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. He's essentially asking, why are you even asking this question? I mean, you've been baptized, haven't you? If you've been baptized, what, is that, what does that say about you? What does that speak to you? What does it preach to you? What does it show forth? Well, as you come under, or as you came under the waters of baptism, believe it or not, in that moment, you were participating in a death. There are a lot of things that happen to a person naturally in death um, also have happened to you through your union with Christ. Again, which baptism uh, signifies for us. All that is true about a person who passes, you know, who was put into the grave is true. You're buried um, when you die. The body's heart stops beating when it dies. The lungs stop pumping. The brain stops working. The body completely fails. There's also one very important spiritual reality uh, for any person who's put into the grave. That according to this person, one of the things that the body also stops doing when you die is it stops sinning. As it says in verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. It's a very natural, normal consequence. And once the body ceases to live, the body... It also is set free from sin. It stops sinning. Now, this is a morbid fact uh, in many cases. Before, but while it's morbid for those without hope, this passage tells us that that reality, that a dead, a dead man doesn't sin, well, that's turned into a blessing for God's people. If you are under grace, you have been joined to Christ in his burial, and you have already been given a merciful death. That, by, that through your union to Christ, signified in baptism, it means that you've been given over to a gracious drowning, um, that you've experienced a merciful slaying 
by the hand of God. As it says in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So in the truthest reality of, of who you are, your spiritual condition uh, before God, his grace has been so good to you that as you've been joined to Christ, you've already died. Sin with its consequence and its power here, it, it, its, its enslavement, its control over you, um, has already been put to death and buried. We consider the Christian life for this year and hopefully every year that God uh, gives to us and grants to us, it's important to daily reset and reconsider the nature of Christ's death and what it means for you as you've been joined to him. And to see how God's grace um, has brought about this death for him and, and for you. That we have died already that most important death. That great curse that was pronounced over, over Adam all the way back in the garden, that true death, that everlasting death, that eternal death, um, well, that curse has been lifted in the death of Christ. And he has truly brought about this new spiritual status quo uh, for us. And what this text tells us is that the first thing that we have to do uh, is not an action if we want to pursue a life in godliness, but it's to consider, to consider what is already true about you. You have died. Your life is hidden in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin, for it has no eternal power or consequence for you. The only struggle that remains for you and the only thing left for you to do in this flesh um, is to die so that this body may be raised one day to newness of life. This perishable flesh is all that has remained to be put off, um, put to a physical end. But it's, put, but, but it's not put off for no purpose. It's put off so that it may, it may be changed. Um, if that is the case, then even our entire notion of what death physical death is like now in this age, well, even that should change dramatically because it does for Paul. He'll go on later in the New Testament to say strange things. He'll talk about death being gain or, or, or um, yeah, death being gain. He'll talk about being able to go into the presence of Christ and how that is better even than life. And he even when he references death in the future, what, is he, what does he refer to it as? Well, as a mere gentle falling asleep that all those who have died in Christ are merely um, asleep. We start the new year by considering how we have been united to Christ in his death and that any pursuit of spiritual change in our lives begins by recognizing what has already happened and what is already true of us in death. But it's also not just death that we consider. But the last thing that I want us to see is point number three, in this text, the hope of a gracious life. Union with Christ 
and, and as we consider, as this text does, how that is sacramentally um, communicated to us through, through baptism, it does show forth this reality that we've been united to him in his death. But part of the reason why we, we, we have to stand on that and we have to believe that isn't for the sake of death itself, but it's the more that we believe that we have died with Christ, the more that we embrace the fact that we die with Christ, uh, that we've died with Christ, well, then the more that we can then turn our hopes to also be enjoying with him in his life and his resurrection. If you look back at verse 3 and 4 again, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, but not for its own sake. We were, but it's in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That there is a new life that is set before you in the new heavens and the new earth. And part of that life, the experience of that life, begins for you now in this age. Christ has been raised and so too we have been raised and will be raised on that last day. Verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his as well. Now, if we die with him, we believe that we also live with him. We know with certainty, with historical certainty, that Christ has been raised from the dead and therefore will never die again. Death no longer has any power and control and dominion over him. If that's the case, then we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God because the life that he lives now, having raised himself, is a life that is lived unto God. That is our spiritual task for us at the start of this this new year, to believe and to consider these things, to consider yourself afresh um, this morning. To, as, to look into the person and the work of Christ, and as you see his story, well, you find the deepest and the truest reality about who you are in him. As you see him and his work, Embrace the position that you have in him. Consider the fact that your Christian life is no longer a matter of, of, of trying to work to produce a result or creating change in your own life. Um, that, that you don't work to establish good spiritual health. But no, your life in Christ is about receiving and embracing a deeper and deeper conviction concerning the things that you've already been granted according to his word and promise. That growth is about receiving and deepening those two things, your faith in him. And all the actions, therefore, that follow at the very close of this section, verses 12 through 14, are about stepping into those realities that you already possess, that these things are already true of you, and it's just... Um, a matter of walking by faith in them. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. 
Don't present yourself, your body, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have already been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. May we pursue a life under grace this year uh, with great zeal, with great interest. But those who are merely and simply presenting ourselves as those who have already been bought, as those who have already died, and to those who have already been raised with Christ um, by faith now and will be raised um, by sight in the future. Let's pray.